Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available for free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay? Okay. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. All right, okay. Hey, everybody, hello, how's it going? This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am reporting to you from Los Angeles, and I'm very happy to have my good friend Adam Greenfield on the program today to celebrate the publication of his debut novel, Circa. It's available now from Pelicanesis Press. I think that's how you pronounce it. Is it Pelicanesis or Pelicanesis? I just texted Adam to ask him to verify. He didn't get back to me. I'm going to go with Pelicanesis because I went online and, uh, like, you know, I, I Googled, like, how do you pronounce telekinesis? And this is what I heard. Let's see. Telekinesis. Yeah. Telekinesis. So I'm going to go with Pelicanesis. And uh, that's the name of the press. The book is called Circa. Adam Greenfield, he and I coming up in just a second. I actually have to finish this monologue uh, relatively quickly because i got to go down and see uh, Adam do his reading, his uh, his book launch. So just thrilled for him. I, he's one of the uh, most readerly people I know. He's constantly reading. He seems to have read everything. He's been working on this book for a long time, and uh, now it's in print. It is also the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. If you're interested in that, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. Otherwise, I'm trying to think of what uh, trying to think of what to tell you. 
What's been going on in my life? I've been up since 2 a.m. I woke up. I had to interview somebody today for the show. I'm not going to say who. I'm going to keep you in suspense. But sometimes I get nervous before an interview because I'll be thinking about it too much or I'll be worried about how it's going to go. So I, my eyes opened at 2 a.m. and I couldn't go back to sleep. And it wasn't just the podcast. Some of it's just that I can't sleep, you know, once I wake up. And then my stomach was sort of achy. I think maybe because I drank too much coffee. I'm not, I'm unclear. I didn't have a good night of sleep is what I'm saying. So I feel a little bit out of it. I feel a little bit, uh, woozy. I'm woozy. Going to go to my friend Adam Greenfield's reading. His new book is called Circa. It's a novel. It's available from Pelicanesis Press. Right? Okay. So here we are. This is me and Adam. You want to hear me and Adam talk? This is me and Adam Greenfield. I mean, I, have, I think I have realistic expectations. Healthy. Yeah. You're not like secretly thinking like this could be it. No way. No way. No way. It's, it's your first book. It's the first book. It's not that kind of thing. It's not like a thriller. There's no crazy M. Night Shyamalan ending to it, you know? Right. It's uh, what And you dedicated this to David, who's on every page? Yeah. Who is that? David was, was one of my best friends growing up, and he died in uh, March of 2015. Suicide. Oh, he was a suicide. Suicide, and he uh, just kind of a big influence in my life. And how how long did you know him? Since seventh grade. Oh, okay. Yeah. Why did he kill himself? Do you know? He he was always going to kill himself. He told me in ninth grade that he was going to kill himself, and he's had a lot of depression, a lot of like maybe bipolar disorder, you know, he was never sure he was in and out of therapy his whole life. And did he get medicated? He got medicated. He got off medication. He drank too much for a time. Um, he just, he always had a plan. That was his thing. He always talked about having a plan, um, to kill himself. And when he was feeling really good, I remember asking him one time how he was doing. And he's like, Oh, he's like, I don't have a plan for the first time in my life, but it came he back. Did. It came back. God, how did he kill himself? This is so morbid, but there's a thing you can buy online called a suicide bag. Oh, right. Oh, okay. You, you know about, about that? Yeah, yeah. You told me about this, but that's like where you put it over your head. Yeah. And, and it comes with a, a tank of, I think it's helium and you cinch it around the neck. I guess it's so morbid. You cinch it around the neck, <coughs> excuse me. And then you, um, um, you, you do the tank and you fall asleep and it's like supposedly an incredibly painless way to die. But there's somebody who actually sells them and i think it was a woman an older woman who who did it who put it together for her husband who was terminally ill and she kind of invented this thing by the way this is how we're starting our our conversation oh, great <laughs> right right out of the gates yeah, welcome everyone <laughs> well that's awful man i lost a buddy to, you know that i lost a buddy to suicide and yeah uh here's what i think about suicide i've been working on this book and i do write a little bit about my buddy in it i think i will and I've also lost a friend to uh, accidental overdose, uh, opiate overdose, which I feel like is a kind of self-destruction. Yeah. Maybe not quite as intentional, but still like feels like a self-destruction, you know, when somebody loses their life to substance abuse. And what I think about in terms of my own experience of life, if I'm, if I'm thinking back, is that I never experienced any kind of suicidal ideation of my own until my buddy killed himself. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it became like a real thing. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, you can, people do this. Yeah. And I, you know, I was what, 19 or 20 years old. And after that, it's not that I'm suicidal, but it became like this 
uh, I don't know, it just became uh, realer. And my, I think it, my imagine, it became part of my imagination yeah. uh, in a way that it wasn't previously. And I, I sort of hate that. It's like kind of like a curse in a way or something. I feel like I want to get it out. But no, it stays with you. And then you want to, or in my case, I wanted to know about that moment. Like I was so fixated on me too. that moment. Like what was he thinking? And I, I'm really of the, so I've had four friends kill themselves. I've had dealt with four suicides and oh my god yeah some david was my closest friend but there's been others and i really I, I really think that people might be prone to it but i think the actual act of killing yourself is very situational i think like a lot of times like when dave died they got his phone and like there was a shopping list on his phone of things he was going to get from the market the next day so i think like if he had just gotten through that night right he probably would have been okay I he might have killed himself at some point but i think you know it was like a what a conflagration of, of of causes or like things that were going on and well i i called my buddy the night that he killed himself and i didn't get him i left a voicemail and i always think about that like what if he had answered yeah like what if we had had a chance to talk yeah and so your head you plays head games with you because there's so much mystery around that moment but to add to what you just said uh, I completely agree about the situationality if that's a word of suicide I know that people have um, you know neurochemical predispositions and difficulties and it's to greater and lesser extents you know some people really have a darkness in them or a difficult uh, situation medically but you know I, I feel like feelings like emotions are all temporary mm-hmm. you think about any emotion you've ever felt in your life you know however happy or sad or angry none of them have ever remained right there's no there's no uh, there's nothing static about it yeah and so I always uh, want to say to, I just want to grab my friend and say, well, it's temporary. Don't kill yourself because of one feeling. Right. It's like you get stuck there. But that's, you can't talk anyone out of that situation because it's like, it's the most magnetic situation of all, of all time. You know, when you're in that moment and you're at the bottom of, of despair and it, you know, you can't see any way out, you cannot talk anyone out of that. You know, it's like trying to convince someone, you know, you're not high or you're not, you can't do it. Uh, can't. So I feel like, you know, there's a part of me that wants to believe that I could, but I, I get it. People get stuck. Like I think about, uh, Bourdain. Yeah. And Kate Spade and Bourdain happened within the same few days. And I talked about it a little bit, I think on, on the show somewhat at some point, but it stays with me. And I have like an essay that I want to write. Uh, I don't know. I, like I, there, I find myself ruminating about Bourdain in particular, just because I was a real fan of his, uh, of his, his yeah. show and his work and just kind of liked him, you know, like I think a lot of people, he's just a good guy. And I like to rib him a little bit about his, uh, hardcoreness. Yeah. <laughs> like his show, he's like constantly trying to be like manly with the tattoos. Well, he's really like, cynical and everything sucks. Uh, and Everything sucks. And I like punk rock and I like to do jujitsu and you know what yeah, I'm saying? He used, used to shoot heroin. Uh-huh. But I guess like the, the essay that I want to write, which I don't know if I'll get around to, which I, I, I might just instead talk, talk myself through here is, or it has to do with this sort of, um, the celebration of consumption that was sort of at the heart of his show, like just kind of like wonton consumption, not wonton soup, but, right, like, no, yes. but just like, I'll eat anything. Yeah. And I remember there was this quote that I was reading in the aftermath of his suicide, where it was like, he was talking about how like, you know, the body is a, 
or life is a carnival, take the ride, your body, you know, I forget what it is, but it was basically trying to say like, look, eat everything, fuck it, you know, enjoy your body, just put whatever into it. And yeah. I, I kind of feel like, no, that's part of the problem. Like, uh, I don't know. I'm going to say this badly, but I actually disagree. I don't think you should just shovel anything into your mouth and call it like a celebration of different cultures. Like we got to think things through. And I feel like there is a history of substance abuse in Bourdain's life that was sort of tied to that attitude. And it was never fully resolved. Cause like he was a guy who like had struggles with heroin, but then could kind of drink. And I don't know, I don't want to judge, but I feel like I keep thinking about that. And I feel like, um, you know, then Jonathan gold died and it was sort of the same thing. It's like, there's like this celebration. Am I saying this so poorly? I like, there's a celebration of like, eat whatever the fuck you want. Don't consider the consequences. Yeah. I didn't see that. I mean, you're talking about (laughs) gluttony, right? Gluttony and consumption, but not just food consumption, consumption writ large. It seemed to be emblematic of a larger problem in our culture, especially in American culture, where we don't consider the consequences of what we consume, whether it's food, whether it's, uh, you know, drink, whether it's culture, like occult, like media, social media. Like, I think we actually do need to pause and consider the consequences more. We need to have a higher level of consciousness and, you know, yeah. Well, what, what about how this food got to my plate? What about the animals that suffered? What about the, the ecological consequences? Like, I'm not a lame, namby-pamby um, spoil sport because I want to think about these things, am I? No. No, I mean, I think Bourdain was trying to, like, you know, use food a- as a way to, like, sneak some kind of cultural education to people who might not otherwise ever know, like, what Indonesia is. Or that, I agree. Like, a place like yeah. Laos exists. Right. Um, you know, it was like he... He stuck in some history about these countries and the cultures and the people, and he did it under the guise of, like, a food show. And um, it was probably a good way to do it, you know, Yeah, uh, as good a way as any. I mean, the problem with all those things and, like, the problem with, like, Vice also, for example, like, that takes these, like, cult- cultural snapshots. It really oversimplifies situations, I think, a little too much, you know. You don't get a lot of context. Um, but people seem to love these kinds of shows where, like, a... Hunter S. Thompson kind of roguish, you know, fucked up journalist goes into a place and like mixes it up with the locals. And... Hunter Thompson's sort of a similar case where, yeah. well, he was know, like the progenitor. I mean, yeah. Like where like, uh, consumption, like celebrating consumption without any real ramifications, ram- consider consideration of ramifications or consequences, not only to his own health, but to the health of everybody around him. Yeah. Like there's a destructiveness to it. But that builds up the persona. Like, that's why he's such a, a rebel, right? I think because, we need to move away from that, though. Yeah. I feel like we shouldn't be celebrating. There's a place for it. But, I mean, yeah. if we were all if we all live like that, yeah, then we'd be fucked if we were like a society of Hunter S. Thompsons. Like, I think as a character, like the Raul Duke character, um, especially like in Fear and Loathing, and also, you know, but both the Fear and Loathing books, like the, the election book and then Las Vegas, like, that's fantastic. Like, I completely celebrate it as a fiction. Yeah. But I think in real life, especially, like, after the age of 45, you just see, like, the, you know, you, you dig deep into the biographies. It was, you know, it was not pretty. No. And uh, it was hard on people who were around him. Yeah. You know, his family and stuff, so. Yeah. 
but I don't know. I, I don't want to sit here up on my high horse and judge. I just think it's worthy of consideration. And what I find, uh, or what I found as I was like reading through all the media in the aftermath of Bourdain's death, just as like one example is that I wasn't hearing anybody say that I wasn't hearing anybody say, well, wait, like, like what? I don't know. I, I don't want to, I think in the, in the broadest sense, he was a really positive force and a very gifted guy, uh, you know, writer, media personality, entertainer, whatever you want to call him. But I just think that, um, it was entertainment, but that show, I mean, I, I kind of stopped watching it years ago because I felt it to be a little repetitive after a while, but, um, what was I going to say? Um, you know, it was, it was entertainment. I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really think about it, I guess. And, but it re I felt like it re I feel like it reinforces some message that, well, like the ugly American. No, no. It, like, I think he actually, like in terms of his engagement with other cultures, it's the opposite of the ugly American. He's very respectful. That's what people loved him around the world because he actually met them on their own terms. And that's, that's where Bourdain is so great. Yeah, no, I agree. But I just think it reinforces some attitude that's very American about like, eat it all, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like have everything and fuck the consequences and life's a party. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, like I look at climate change as an example. I'm like, that's, that's sort of why the fucking earth is melting. Yeah. And but some people, you're never going to convince them to care about politics. I mean, even though, like, you know, we're I'm not saying climate change is politics because it should supersede politics or be above it. But some people just don't give a shit. I just read the biography of Lou Reed and the the biography was right. Like, he didn't really care. He didn't care about politics one way or the other, you know, and, and like, especially in today's day and age to think that you don't have an opinion about what's going on seems kind of in incredible or hard to believe but i think there are people who are either they're self-obsessed or they just i don't know they're not built that way they're not wired that way but they're you know and, and it, it's not even like that they're in it for themselves I, I think they do have an agenda that's beyond self-serving it's just like they want to live a certain way they want to consume they want to make art and you know I think it's a, it's called being up your own ass. A little well, bit. I think it's, yeah, I think there's also an emotional component, especially I mean, if we're talking about food, but also if we're talking about media, anything people consume on a regular basis, I think, you know, it can be used as a way to numb oneself, uh, you know, to get away from feeling feelings and to get away from the, whatever's going on internally. You know, you turn on the TV, you oh, like open your phone, you go to the pantry or the refrigerator. I mean, right. These are the ways in which we sort of numb ourselves against yeah. our, you know, the pain of being human. Yeah. But I think that the, uh, the truth is that if we want to actually, in a in a significant and lasting way, mitigate against the pain of being human, we have to do the opposite of numbing ourselves. We have to lean into it to go into our suffering and like actually engage with it and look at it and investigate it and then take care of ourselves in a way that makes some sense. Otherwise, all you're going to be doing is temporarily numbing yourself. And by, con com you know, by doing that repeatedly, you actually wind up self-harming. That's what I think. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I always kind of bristle at, you know, p people who suffer from like severe depression. If, if you don't have that in your life, you know, and I've had some of that in my life, 
people who who don't have it and they see you from the outside they're you know it's constantly well just snap out of it yeah, like, go exercise go exercise yeah, yeah, like yeah. yeah like eat more fucking ancient grains you'll be fine <laughs> it's not like that you cannot talk your way out of it you can't eat your way out of it right um but the, you know there's that gulf of uh, it, it's just it's just a big misunderstanding it's just I don't know. I mean, you, you, you know, you like my you, friend you David. You can't be treated. I mean, you can. There is such a thing as mental health care. There is, of Medi- course. Sometimes you need meds. Doesn't help everyone, though. I mean, you think yeah. there's some people who are beyond help? Yeah. Like they just there's nothing that anyone can do. To, yeah. They're 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 wiring. They're, yeah. They're on a dark path. Yeah, because I think it's so situational. I think at some point, even if they're like maintaining and they're ninety percent, they're okay. If you know during one of those downturns and, you know, they have a suicide bag in the closet or, you know, they have a bottle of sleeping pills, it's going to be hard to stop them. Right. Well, don't have a fucking suicide bag in the closet. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's going back to like, I always have a plan, you know, yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's really tough. And I think that, you know, the other thing that I think about suicide and suicidal ideation is that there's a lot of shame around it. And I think that more people, then the statistics would bear a significantly higher number of people struggle with uh, depression and you know have suicidal ideation as part of their psychology than would ever admit it. It's mm-hmm. not something people are like racing to raise their hand and admit to. Right. But I think it's very I th- actually, and and I think there's different degrees of it. I think there are people like your friend David who is like he seriously had a plan, and then there are people like me who it's more of a philosophical thing. Like wow, you could actually you can take your own life. Yeah. Like, under what circumstances would you do that? And, like, I, I'm not somebody who I don't think I would do that. Yeah. Unless, like, you know, nukes were on their way. <laughs> I don't either. I mean, I've never been that – I've never been in, in those depths or I've never been in that state of mind, you know? I mean, I've been down. I've been depressed. But, like, yeah, yeah I mean, that's a – there's a far cry between that and, like, you know, having the, the barrel of the gun against your temple, you know? I think I'm just too conscious of – I feel too guilty. Well, yeah, right. I'm too conscious of how much people are relying on me, uh, like my they're, kids. They're and, not. <laughs> they'd actually just get out of the way, old man. But I, I feel like uh, I'm. But I, having been uh, on the receiving end of losing somebody to suicide and knowing how that feels, like to do that to somebody else uh, is not something that computes with me. And then also just being like, uh, and I think that this, and this is going to sound real. I'm going to get eye rolls for saying this, but um, doing meditation has really opened my eyes to like the temporary nature of feelings. Like I don't trust my feelings and that's a good thing. Like I, I, I watch them come and go. I see the insanity of my mind every morning and evening and you just watch that. I watch it come and go and you start to learn like, Oh, so this is just what the mind does. And Oh, this is just what the feelings do. Like it's like storm clouds, you yeah. know, they blow through and I'm, I feel like I'm solid enough in my understanding that like the storm doesn't stay. Yeah. And it's part of, it's part of being human to a degree to have storms blow through. It is. Again, I think it's like, you can't know what that person's going through in that moment. You know, it's just, and, and the whole thing, like, I mean, I'm sure people will, will hate me for saying this, but I don't really think it's a selfish act. I don't think people are thinking about other people when they're in, in the depths of, you know, that much depression or but that isn't, much Isn't sadness. that the definition of uh, selfish to not be thinking about anybody else or is it different? Well, yeah, it is. But I think like being depressed and, you know, being neurotic, I think a lot of that is, I mean, it's not self-conscious narcissism, but it is. I mean, it's like, 
you know, you're, you're obsessed with yourself. You're obsessed with your feelings. You're thinking about stuff all the time. You're thinking about how things affect you. I think you get caught up in, in yourself, you know, like, so I think, yeah, to a degree, suicide is a narcissistic act, but I don't think it's like something that someone's doing to somebody else. Right. And it's also like, you know, we talk about the word selfish. Like it's like, it's not like, oh, you know, there's a plate full of cookies and I want them all. Right. I want those like, suicide cookies. Yeah. I want those suicide cookies. It's not like that. I think what it, what you're speaking to is more like a feeling of overwhelm. Mm-hmm. I think when people get lost in themselves to that degree, like there's, there's neurochemical stuff happening or emotional stuff happening and it's a state of overwhelm and you just don't see beyond that. And it's not like some conscious, like I want it all for me. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. Yeah. It's there's, I don't know. It just doesn't feel quite like the traditional understanding of selfishness. And I think that, um, you know, there's illness involved. And I think that, you know, feelings of despair and isolation and, um, desperation are common to us all. Like, even if we're not people who are at risk, I think we all as human beings, like as human animals in some corner of ourselves can relate and can understand. And, um, it's just difficult when somebody follows through. Yeah. You know, I feel we all feel it. It's a weird kind of grief and it's a weird way to lose somebody. And it has a weird effect on the collective consciousness, even if it's news of like a celebrity, you know, it's very, it's really hard. It's, it's really hard to understand it. I think that that's the thing that makes it so devastating is like, you want to know again, you want to know what that person was thinking. You want to know what that person was feeling. You almost want to like be in that place at that time. Right. I remember like there's a morbidity, like you really, cause I'm yeah. the same way. Like, wow, my buddy hanged himself. And I'm like, so he went into the closet yeah. and he cinched up this belt and it's oh, just it's, like, what the fuck? It's so intense. Yeah. I mean, that is a really fucking violent way to kill yourself. And then like, what are you, what are you doing to the people who have to find you? You know, right. can you imagine like somebody walking in like a loved one or something? I mean, like, you know, like sleeping pills, at least you're sleeping and, you know, it's kind of a little bit more less, it's less violent, but like hanging yourself or shooting yourself. I mean, that's a really, that's almost like a fuck you to people. Uh, right. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah. That's the thing too, is that there's a lot of anger. Hope you left that hotel made a nice tip. Who Bourdain? But it was Eric Repair, wasn't it? Yeah. Who, by the way, is like his like his best friend, right? his best friend, but also like the dude who's like Buddhist and right. I feel like the fact that Bourdain killed himself there, knowing that Repair would probably find him, I think he probably considered that. Yeah. I think about that relationship, and I feel so bad for Eric. Like that's got to suck. Yeah. I mean, what a horrible thing to have to discover. So. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. Anyway, it's it's uh it's dark. I'm sorry about your buddy. Um, and uh, it's nice. I mean, how nice of you to have like written a book as a kind of tribute to him. Yeah, I mean, he died in the middle of me writing it, so um, you know, he he kind of factored into a lot of it, even you know, obviously before he died, and so it kind of altered everything. And then actually, not to really bum everyone out, but <laughs> let's uh, bring this down another notch if we could. My father also passed away in the middle of me uh, writing this and he was another big, but not of, a suicide, not a suicide. Yeah. He was another big kind of character in, in the story. And so like he died and then David died and it was just like, this, how did your dad die? He had cancer, okay. you know, m- multiple myeloma. Oh, right. Um, and he, so, you know, like, so at a certain point I was like, this book is killing people. Yeah, right. Like, I'm like, that's its own book. I can write you in here and you die. <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, I know, I mean, we're buddies. And so I know uh, like the broad outlines of your childhood, but you grew up, I, I don't know a lot of the details. Yeah. So, so like, let's get into it. You grew up in Los Angeles. You're a lifer. Yeah. I'm a lifer. I grew up in the Pacific Palisades. Nice neighborhood. Nice neighborhood. Like what, the beach. It's, yeah, it's out by the beach. So, so for people who don't have context in Los Angeles, like the Palisades are sort of like above Santa Monica. Yeah. Between Santa Monica and Malibu or Santa Monica and Topanga. Yeah. Malibu. But like up on a bluff, basically above the ocean. Part, I mean, part of it's up on a bluff. And then, you know, if you drive sunset to the beach um, or sunset ends, it kind of ends in the Palisades, but you go through, uh, sorry, sunset ends at the beach. Um, you have to go through the Palisades to get there. So, you know, there's, there's flats, there's, um, stuff in canyons i lived up in a part of the palisades called the highlands which was like this development from the early 70s very like tracked home kind of development like et shit yeah yeah Yeah. a little bit like that okay yeah and like uh celebrities around like were you like when you were a kid is it like celebrities in your classes and stuff um not my class celebrity spawn yeah there was um there were celebrity neighbors. My next door neighbor was Wink Martindale. No. <laughs> of, uh, what was it? Newlywed game? No, it was no. a game show. Uh, Joker's Wild? No, it was, um, it was a weird one. No, it was like, it was one of those couple dating games. Fuck, I'm going to look it up. Right, look it up. Because I remember, I mean, of all, na- I mean, the ga- game show host name, Wink Martindale. But He's ch- a tic-tac-toe. Is that what it was? Well, that's what it says on Wikipedia. Hang on. He had a multi-varied career. He was he was a renaissance man. Tic-tac-toe, high rollers, debt, gambit, disc jockey, radio personality, game show host, television producer. Yeah. So he was your next door neighbor. Did you like know Wink? No, he kind of he moved out when I was pretty young. I mean, we you know saw him a bit, but yeah, I mean, Chevy Chase lived in the neighborhood. Ted Knight lived in the neighborhood. Did you see Chevy around? Yeah, all the time. I've heard he's a dick. That's what I hear. I mean, I didn't know him at all. Okay. But I saw um, him hiking once, which was really weird and out of context. A bit runyon. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. I didn't say anything, but we were just I was just watching Fletch again the other night. It's such a funny movie. I know. It's I like so that, that's the thing funny. that troubles me about Chevy is that like I love Fletch, uh Spies Like Us. Yeah. 
right? And Caddyshack. Then, Caddyshack. So like he was like a hero of mine as a kid, but then there's this oral history of Saturday Night Live that I read years ago. Yeah. You know those big, like huge yeah. behemoth oral histories? I know which one you're talking about. Everybody hated him. Yeah. He's like a, just like... Like just like a uh, a spectacular dick to yeah. like the ca- like the cast members. Well, he was only on for a season, right? And he was like kind of a breakout star, and he got. Maybe and then he was like, "I'm going to go out and be himself. a movie star," yeah. and he but, did. And he did, but then like he would come back to do like the guest hosting thing, and he would like walk into Thirty Rock or whatever and just like shit on everybody. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> it's good life. Sounds great. I aspire to that. <laughs> maybe I'm overstating it, but uh, anyhow. So Chevy Chase was in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, Dom DeLuise. <laughs> I, sh- I share a birthday with Dom DeLuise. Do you? Yeah. His son was in school with me. He was a couple years older than what me. What was his name? Uh, David. Oh, okay. David DeLuise. Um, yeah. All right. So, But it was a different LA back then. It was. I mean, I tell people I'm from the Pacific Palisades and they, you know, they're like, they think I'm a, a spoiled rich kid or something. And it really wasn't like that back then. My parents, when they when they were trying to buy a house, they were either going to move to the Valley or to the Palisades, and houses were the same amount of money in both those places. My friend who grew up out in the Valley, and so for people listening, you know the Hollywood Hills, like on one side is the L.A. Basin, on the other side is the San Fernando Valley. Mm-hmm. So L.A. proper is in the Basin, and then the Valley is the Valley. It's hotter out there. But it's sort of like back in the day, in the 70s, it was like s- suburban. Yeah, you oh, know, yeah. If, if you wanted to raise your family get a more affordable house, have maybe a little bit more space. You know, yeah. that was where you went. And I have a friend who was raised in, um, God, I'm going to forget the name. It begins with a T, not, not Topanga. Tarzana. Tarzana. And her parents at the time that they were looking for a house, were looking uh, at Tarzana and Malibu and they bought, they bought in Tarzana, but yeah. you could have gotten a house in Malibu yeah. back in the day, like close to the beach for, for the same, amount, for the of same money. amount of money. And that, that same house all these years later would be worth exponentially more. Right. Of course. So, I mean, to own a, to have bought property in Malibu back in like the sixties and seventies, you would have made out like a bandit. Yeah. I mean, if you bought anywhere in LA, you would have made out like a bandit in the long run. You know, I remember my dad always, Oh, property can't go up anymore. There's no way it could get more expensive than this. Yeah. Um, but he, he was a lawyer and he had a law firm in the Pacific, in the Palisades. So that's, that's why. What kind of law? He did like, civil litigation he was in court a lot like uh he did a lot of divorce law towards the end never run out of business and (laughs) he was so miserable he hated it so much did he yeah it it really made him nuts he was like they're the most i remember him like coming home from work and just you know people going through divorce he's like they're the most miserable people in the world it's It's, hard it's the worst yeah you know it's kind of like not to keep bringing this down but it's like divorce let's do it it's like a death I feel like there's something, there's a similar, there's a similarity between, uh, the grief one experiences at the loss of a loved one and the grief one experiences at the loss of a love. Like when you think you're going to be with somebody forever, you make these vows and then things go sideways. A person betrays you, lets you down. It's a toxic relationship. You're fighting and finally it just like reaches a boiling point and breaks. I feel like people who are going through that, um, I don't know. Am I making sense? Is that- yeah. I mean, I'm, I haven't gone through it, but I, I would hate it. I would go to almost, I mean, as you know, I'm married. Like I would go to almost any lengths not to get divorced. I feel similarly. And I feel like I'm not a true, I always say this. I'm not like a traditionalist as a person. I don't care about holidays. I'm not sentimental about almost anything. 
Um, but I am unusually uh, affected by news of divorce. Really bothers me when I don't like to hear about people's marriages breaking. Even up. people you don't know, like celebrities. I'm just and like stuff? Oh, I, I'm just like oh, like fuck. I was feeling you know I wanted them to make it. You're such a romantic. Well, but I also because I'm not like a religious person. Uh, like I, I doesn't I don't respond you know to religious dog uh, religious dogma, but I do hold sacred in my uh, in my life my wedding vows. Like I made a vow. And I'm going to stick to it. Like, I believe in being a person of your word, you know? And I know sometimes things go sideways and a relationship becomes untenable. I'm a realist. You know, I know that not every marriage can make it and not every marriage should make it. But, like, I'm not somebody who takes that lightly. And I think, like, I don't know, I've said this before to people and they're like, whoa, like, relax, man. <laughs> but I'm like, no, but isn't that what it's all about? You actually like, like push all the religious context aside. Like you're looking at somebody saying like, okay, I'm in. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're going to give it your best shot. You know, I think that's what you're saying. <laughs> but that means like in sickness and in health, like well, things yeah. aren't going to, things are not going to go well. That's the whole, like I knew that from the beginning. But things, like you said, things go sideways. I have friends who are going through divorces now, you know, it's kind of like that first, that first tier of it. And they certainly never planned on it. And if you saw them a couple of years ago, you never would have guessed it. And then you try to figure it out, but you, and then you inevitably take one side or, or the other, and then you got to sit back and say, you don't know what was going on in that marriage. You don't know what the other person who seemed so innocent was doing or not doing or saying or not saying. And it's such a personal thing. I don't know. You can never know what's, what's really going on. What I always say, whenever I'm offering unsolicited advice to friends who are about to get married or, or solicited advice, not that I do this that often, but, and I give this advice to myself, even though I don't always follow it, is that in a relationship, if you want it to last, speaking or acting from anger is the last thing you should do. Or like, that's something you should work strenuously to avoid. And it's really hard because you get annoyed, you know, like well, it could be the littlest thing. Yeah. But if you feel that, like take a breath, take a walk, don't act on it, don't speak from it. That will go a long way because I think what what fells a lot of relationships is the accumulation of um, unmindful speech. You say things that are hurtful. It's like a, it's like death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. It's, it's rarely like some huge blow up. It's like this build. Yeah, you know. Well, I think my my wife and I we always talk about this. Like I hate fighting. I hate confrontation. Right. And she feels like it's good for us. Like like you're saying, she's like it's better that we get it out. You know here and there rather than let it all build up and then have like one colossal fight. But I don't like it. It's There's, like almost like that ritualistic, um, like jihad, you know, like to fight for, you know, the fight for fight's sake, but you got it. You got it. There has to be a dialogue and that like, I think conflict is inevitable. Like you're going to have some conflict and dialogue, but it's the way in which it's context. It's like how you discuss it, where you discuss it, what your tone is. We fight frequently about not fighting enough. <laughs> like that's a, that's a recurring thing to us. Yeah, we talked about it last night. I'm like, I'm a really verbal person who like, I'm happy to discuss anything. Carrie is more like the Minnesota Scandinavian. Like I'm the Sicilian. She's the Minnesota Scandinavian repressed like not going to talk, you know? So I think that's like the balance. Sounds like a sitcom. It kind of is. Yeah. She's like a Bergman movie and <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, this is getting precious, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I feel like, um, 
it it hopefully evens itself out because maybe like I want to discuss things too much and her like reticence, I can kind of bring her out and she can sort of like tamp me down a little yeah. bit. Ellen and I are the same. I think, I think it's good to have some, to have some differences, you know, like to balance each other out. But when you're both kind of like, she, she likes the idea of us fighting more, but she's also not very confrontational. So like we both stew on it in different ways. It's, it's, but that's, but these are relationships. Like, I, I don't think you can be in relation to another person intimately, whether it's a friendship or a spouse or a significant other of any kind for any extended period of time and not have this be a component. It's just a normal part of being human. Um, but it's just how you navigate it. And I think, uh, ultimately if both parties are operating in good faith and from the position of wanting to maintain and, uh, stay connected and in love or whatever it is, um, you have a pretty decent shot of weathering whatever storms come along, come along. And I think that, you know, like I always, I'm, I'm the great beneficiary of my wife's patience. She's like a really patient person. Mm-hmm. Like her dad, like couldn't even physically yell. He's literally <laughs> one of those people. He could not yell. Couldn't like if he wanted to, he couldn't, he just had these quiet voice and he's infinitely patient kind of guy, you know, but all, you know, and she sort of got that. So I'm sort of like crossing my fingers. Like maybe my kids will get the can't yell thing. Like that seems kind of like a yeah, nice. You don't want to only, I mean, you don't want to have any, you don't want to not have any voice. I my I've was, well, you know, I have two kids and one is very like apologetic and a little subservient. And the other one is like, you know, hell bent for leather all yeah. the time. And like, I kind of wish each one had a little bit of the other, uh-huh. you know, instead of being so extreme. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I don't think you can get two. You'd rarely get two who are the same. Yeah. I can't quite tell yet what my, like I, you know, Evan's pretty much like Carrie, but maybe she's got a little bit of me. I feel like daughters are often like their fathers and sons are often like their mothers. Yeah. That's a generalization. Yeah. I don't know. I got two daughters. So, okay. So raising the Palisades, different time in LA. Different time. Dad was a lawyer. Mom was Tra- st- travel agent, travel agent still is happy. Uh, but like happy childhood. Do you have a sibling? You have siblings. Well, I have a, <laughs> I have a sister. Uh huh. Yeah. I have a sister I grew up with. Right. Um, but I have this crazy fertility story. Okay. I want to get to that. All right. That's cause I, I feel like this is like, first of all, this, I feel like has a story you, you need to tell somehow. Yeah. It's so bizarre, you know, so wild. Yeah. Uh, Although I'm finding out it's not that uncommon. Like no. the more people I talk to, it's not, it's not something that's like unprecedented, right? but it is unique. It's unique. Um, so you grow up relatively happy kid. Um, yeah, I was happy once I found like a group of good friends, then, you know, we were very close and did stuff together and, you know, we're really like a, a family. My dad and I didn't get along very well. Um, why not? We're just very different people. Like he was kind of a jock and a frat boy and, you know, very rah-rah. And he was very, like, self-centered kind of person. And I don't know. He never – he wasn't, like, really that interested in me. I had to, like, kind of meet him where he was a lot more than he met me where I was. So I, wor- I worry that I'm sort of like that. With your kids? Well, just because I don't like to play, like, dolls and shit. I know. But there's a difference between that and, like, I mean – my dad was like obsessed with baseball cards. That was his like huge hobby. He had a huge baseball card collection. And if I wanted to spend any time with him, I had to go to these baseball card conventions with him. And I had like almost no interest in it, but like 
I, I had to learn like a ton about baseball and, and all this shit. And, you know, it was like trying to sleep with a girl and you're like, you're like, oh no, I'm totally into ice skating. But, right. you know, you, just, you have to fucking do it. You do what you want and you, know, you do what you have to do. But, so um, you and your sister, yep. you had good friends. You're a social person. Yeah. Like, you're not somebody who's, I mean, for a writer, you're not like some cloistered. You like, you get out, you have a lot of friends. You still have a lot of these friendships to this day. Yeah. People you grew up with. Yeah. Um, and then adolescence, were you a popular kid in high school? No. Not at all? No. Were you, were you like a, a target of ridicule? No. I was just kind of like anonymous, I think, a little bit. I had, a, again, this really good group of friends. There were probably six or eight of us, and we liked punk rock, and we played a lot of Dungeons and & Dragons, and we hung out together every minute we could. And Drugs? Was, alcohol? Like, Do you have like any kind of like Brett Easton LSE part? No, not like that at all. I mean... Yeah, I experimented with drugs, but it wasn't like, you know, we were doing coke off each other's Porsches or anything like that. It was like... I'm sorry. That didn't ha- I'm sorry that didn't happen for you. <laughs> you and me both, buddy. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, a little bit. And, it was you know, I was interested in it. Yeah. And then you go to Michigan for college. I went to UC Santa Barbara for the first two years. Oh, you did? Yeah. And then what happened? Um, I never really wanted to go there in the first place, but my father didn't want to pay for me to do my general eds out of state because uh. he was he was pr- pretty cheap so uh, right he's like do your first two years in state and then you can transfer to where you want to go and it, i yeah i mean sb ucsb was fine in the long so, run it's beautiful it's beautiful but i mean i grew up at the beach i had no affinity for the beach i fucking hate the beach to be honest with you i don't love the beach either i hate beach culture yeah it, i was totally like traumatized by it to be honest with you i like kid. to swim in the ocean I will say that. Like, I like to get in the water, but, like, I don't like to sit on the beach. Oh, I hate it. I sand everywhere and, I, like, I know. fucking it's dirty. surfers. And I just, I'm sick of all of it. I'm too pale, too. You're I really can't, pale. I can't, <laughs> I can't do the sun. No. Like, I'm not somebody who can just be out in the sun all day. So when I think about, like, vacationing or going to, like, you know, I, I don't want to do it. It's no. not, I just have to sit in the shade all the time. No, I'd rather do, like, a city and do some museums and walk around. Right. Yeah, I'm not a beach person at all. But I do like to swim in the ocean. All right. Like I, I like that. We'll go sometime. But it's feel. I feel like it's filthy. It's dirty. So why would we go there? I don't want to go there. Maybe we'll go to a different ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Not this ocean. So, okay. So you go to UCSB. Two years. And like you didn't like, you built up, I'm sure, some friendships there. Yeah. And then you were like, fuck it, I'm out of here. I'm going to Michigan. I'm going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And why Michigan? I was interested in political science and they had a really good political science department. Well, that's a very pragmatic decision. Yeah. I mean, I applied to a few places. And why political science? I've always been interested in politics and, you know, wanted to study it. I knew I wanted to like major in that and you know, learn what I could. And does that, and that, does that factor in? No. To your book? No, not at all. So it's not a political book? No, not at all. Do you think you would ever write a political book? No. I'm kind of, I'm kind of done with politics. I mean, I'm kind of done being interested in politics, I think. But I feel like politics is hard to write about in a way that's not dissimilar to like spiritual concerns being hard to write about. Like, because both have something to do with dogma. And I don't like, think I have anything new to say about politics. That you know? too. Like, I think everything's been said. I think everyone's incredibly activated right now on one side or the other. And everyone's got opinions. Everyone's an expert on everything. It's just, there's no fucking room for anybody. I, I, I nobody needs my voice added to that. You know, I mean, I have opinions, but I, kind of keep them to myself and all my friends kind of feel the same way I do about everything. So what's the point? You know, we're just reinforcing each other's anger. I agree to a degree. I agree to a degree, but I, uh, I do think there's something to information warfare. I think that 
it sounds kind of extreme, but I think that's kind of the, the situation we find ourselves in. And I do think that we need to try to amplify facts and, um, stories that, uh, need to cut through. And if we don't, then there are going to be bots and nefarious actors who amplify disinformation and counter messages. Like I think like individual citizens have a responsibility to engage, even if it just means sharing stories and, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like n nobody's listening to anybody. So you might as well not even try. I mean, honestly, I mean, if, if we know something is fact and the other side says it's not fact that it's a lie, wh what are you ever going to do to prove it? Even if you showed them proof, even if you play people tapes of what they said or what they heard or something that definitively happened, they can still choose not to believe it anymore. Yeah, so what's the point? Fake anymore? news. Yeah. Fake news. Did you have any inkling? Like when you studied uh, political science, like were you reading about uh, fascist dictatorships and how, do you know what I'm saying? Did you yeah. have any inkling of the festering um, disease in our body politic? Do you have a sense of it creeping? No, not at all. I mean, I think like, you know, you're aware that politics was kind of fucked up and, and that the system was broken, but it always felt like it couldn't get any worse than it is already. And then every cycle, it seems to get like a little bit worse. So now I'm just kind of open to whatever kind of free fall, you know, might be in store for like, us. Yeah, like where's bottom? There is no bottom. You don't, you don't think there is? No. I think, I think like at this point, the gov government and the presidency in particular are irredeemable. It'll never be the same it'll never be what it was you know it trips me out though i think about this a lot the same way that we hate trump the same way that we, you know we can't find a thing to agree with him on uh we can't find a a single point of empathy for any of his positions or feelings that's the way people felt about obama you know and like to try to to try to put yourself in their shoes you can't do it but those you, people are insane but that's the thing and they're saying <laughs> the exact same thing about you I, but like the thing about it is that like, they're, they're, like I'm saying it on the merits, like there's a difference. It's I, not, it's a false equivalence that drives me crazy. Like Obama was not perfect. No president is. There's plenty of legitimate reasons to criticize him. And I'm open to that. I'm open to having like a, a debate, um, operating from a mutual set of facts, but where I'm not open is where people start to debate using their own realities. Like we have to have some foundation. That's the thing. Objectivity is gone. Ugh, well, we need to get it back. How? I don't know. Let's figure it out. All right. <laughs> um, Let's do it. So you're studying political science. You're at Michigan. How was going from being like an L.A. kid your whole life, Palisades, Santa Barbara, and then suddenly being in Ann Arbor? I loved it. You loved it. I really did. Yeah. I mean... I'd never seen, I'd seen snow once before in my entire life. So like, you know, like living through a winter and, and the beautiful snow everywhere. And it was fucking, it was a dream. There's you know? something sort of Midwestern about you. I feel like you would, you like in a way that many native Los Angelinos or Californians, um, don't tend to present themselves. You seem somebody who would like fit well in the Midwest. I like the Midwest. A That's lot. a compliment by yeah, the way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, no, I, I do. I like it. I went to grad school in Chicago. I really like Chicago. My wife's from Minnesota, like yours. Like we've talked about moving there. I'm actually much more for it than she is. I, I would go in a heartbeat. Into Minneapolis. Yeah, I love it.
Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the winter, I might bum me out. I'd have to see how I could do. Yeah. But then, like, you have something to look forward to when the winter ends, you know? Like, here, or, like, you have nothing. It's just the same, like, hot day over and over and over. It's too fucking hot in the summer. It's awful. I don't like the summer. Something, something, I, I say this every year, but something feels br- really broken now with the weather or the climate or something. Like, even the air just looks like yellow. It just looks like everything's about to burst into flames at all times. <laughs> Fuck. I know. We're going to have to start dealing with, like, spontaneous human combu- combustion. Like, that's going to be, like, the, the big political platform. Just human bodies just yeah. bursting into flames. Like fake news. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so then you get out of – you go to Ch- University of Chicago and get your master's degree? Yeah. In – Middle Eastern studies. Oh, right. Okay. And then you go to – did you – what, did you go travel abroad and study or did you – Yeah, I was, I was in the Middle East for a while and then – Where um, in the Middle East? I was in Jerusalem. I was in Israel. I was in the West Bank. Traveled to Egypt. I was in Cairo for a little bit. With the idea of of doing what? Of learning? I was going to get my PhD in Middle Eastern history. Why? Why that? I mean, you're Jewish. Jewish. So did that have that? Was that an influence? Like wanting to understand? Yeah, it was. I mean, that was part of it. I mean, the big influence, honestly, was seeing Lawrence of Arabia when I was a kid and just like being in love with that era of history and wanting to learn all about it. Um, and then that kind of took me away into it, but yeah. And I was really into it. I was gonna, again, get my doctorate and why didn't you, because I, it was like almost time to start thinking of what I would want to write a dissertation on. And I had no idea. And the thought of like putting four years into, into something that I wasn't even half asked about. I wasn't even half asked because I didn't even know what it was. What did you learn on the ground in the middle East? Like you go there Fresh out of, um, or you're a grad student, young, probably more idealistic than you are now. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, you see the conditions people are living in and you see the effects of colonialism and imperialism and it makes you develop a real empathy for people and, you know, gives you a real sense of what things, I mean, I have a really specific opinion about things in the Middle East. Um, Which is what? Well, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a big Israel supporter, you know? Which is like, because like there, this is the thing. There are Jews. I think people who are not Jewish often assume that all Jews are like Zionists. Zionists, yeah, and that that's not the case. No, and but yeah, you know, but yet there is like a strong cultural identity. I, I what I would say as a non-Jew is that I totally get the idea of post World War II Jews wanting to establish their own place and way to defend themselves. But there's like a really blatant irony in the fact that like after being excommunicated and, uh, ex, you know, executed and like, uh, you know, all the horrors that uh, happened to Jewish people in World War II, they then went to Israel and pushed people out of their homes. Yeah. Took their, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's like, why can't there be some acknowledgement of that? Eh, like there's got to be. And like the thing is, is that like now that it's this far down the pike, like what, like the Jews aren't all going to pack up and leave Israel. No. But there has to be some acknowledgement of wrongdoing and like a two-state solution. Is yeah. That, that's, yeah, I that's, mean. That's what's got to happen? Yeah. I mean, the, I, I, in my opinion, like what has to happen, like what, what the bones of a peace deal are, are pretty clear. I think everyone really knows what those are, you know, like 
two-state solution. You have to let the Palestinians have a capital in East Jerusalem, which is East Jerusalem's de facto a Palestinian city anyway. But they're living sort of in a, they're, they're kind of barricaded in, right? Well, now, I, I haven't been there in so long, but there's a wall now up between the West Bank and, and, and Israel. So, uh. but I mean, Jerusalem is, you know, it's it's one city, but like Jews, well, back, back when I was there anyway, Jews really didn't go into East Jerusalem very much, you know? Yeah. Um, I was there in 2012. I went to Jerusalem. Oh, that's right. I remember you were doing some research, right? About <laughs> yeah. organ donation? Yeah. yeah. But I, I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I mean, Tel Aviv, um, Jerusalem. I mean, I was there for a short time, but I enjoyed my time there. And I didn't get into like the, you know, I was pretty traditional tourist route. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to see. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's an amazing place. But I just feel like Netanyahu's... He seems like a dark force to me. Yeah. He seems like Dick Cheney. That's how I equate him in my mind. He yeah. feels like the Jewish dick. He's just like a hardliner. Did you say he's, he's the Jewish dick? Is that what he's the Jewish saying? dick. I just don't think he's helping. That's what bothers me about him. No. I feel like he's actively har- harming the chance for peace. Yeah. And he seems like he seems very eager to drop bombs on Iran, uh, on Iran and... It's like tamp it down, dude. Let's not be so militaristic. Like, let's try to broker a solution that's going to lead to uh, peaceful coexistence. Yeah, you know. But I think that you know, in a way, I mean, these are two these are apples and oranges. But I think that maybe there's some similarity. Like, I think about racial injustice in the United States and the persisting tensions and uh, injustices that we keep seeing over and over again. And then I think about the the, um, the issue of reparations. Mm-hmm. Like I think when there has been systemic injustice perpetrated over you know centuries or decades, and it's that big and that long lasting, if there is any chance of genuine healing to happen, there has to be some sort of reparation made. Some sort of even if it like there, there's got to be a real gesture made. And I think that. In addition to having a two-state solution, there would have to be some acknowledgement of like, you know what? We fucked up. We yeah. pushed you out of your homes. Like, we're sorry. We're sorry. And like, not only are we sorry, but we're going to like try to make good on it and be in, in the form of like, rep, like financial reparations or some concession of, or like re, you know, yeah. concession of land. No, I mean, I, I mean, that's part of this. I mean, that's part of what has to happen. It, they'll never give the land back, but they do. They should give them something, you know, for well, having to live in refugee camps since 1948. Right. And it's like, it's like, let's narrow this down like microcosmically. Like if you're in a relationship with another human being and you fuck up really badly or do something really awful to somebody, you're not going to repair that relationship unless you first acknowledge that you did something wrong and you say you're sorry and try to make it better. Why can't we? Why can't we do this as nation states? You know, I feel like, like this is like the preschool edition of other people. Like, like can we just get along? Well, hey, but listen. Sometimes I feel like uh, our leadership, our political leadership, would do well to go like visit a fucking kindergarten class and watch how the kids are taught to get along. Yeah, because some of those lessons carry over. Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> God, I can get so boxy, but I'm very frustrated as somebody who engages with uh, political news way too much. Um, I find myself feeling maddened, you know, by it, like by the insanity of it, like the persistent insanity of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to do something. I feel like, I mean, you remember when you were a kid and you would read about, you'd read some chapter, terrible chapter in history about slavery or about the Holocaust or what have you. And you were like, 
if I was alive during that time, I would have done something or I would have really, you know, made a difference or I wouldn't have stood for it. And right. now here we are in one of those times. And I just, I don't know what to do. I, I don't I, know. What... I go out to marches. I'm donating. I'm fucking tweeting like a crazy person, which is not nothing. I will defend that. I'm not criticizing your tweeting. I know, but I'm just saying that like, uh, the only reason I'm preemptively defending it is that I, it does feel like a trifle. It's like, how, how hard is it to retweet something? But like, I'm increasingly, especially as we approach the midterms, of the belief that in volume, in mass volume, American citizens of conscience and hopefully some um, uh, of discriminating minds who are able to parse the news. Because that's part of the problem is media literacy. I feel like people who don't have a sense of the terrain don't know who to ingest. You know what I'm saying? Who do you read? What do you watch? Yeah. Like, I think some people just get on a certain track and like can sort of become hypnotized. Yeah. You know, you're listening to right wing radio or you're watching Fox. Like, well, everyone thinks they have the, the great news outlet, you know, like that's like, I get that. But like, I'm watching MSNBC sometimes. I'm also watching CBS and I'm watching ABC and I'm reading David Frum and I'm reading George Will and I'm reading Wall Street Journal articles and I'm reading New York Times and Washington Post articles. And I feel like the Washington Post has done a more exemplary job in this era than any major newspaper. And like, I feel like I can parse it and I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back too much, but like, I think there are people who like, if you spend enough time, uh, digging into this stuff, you do start to develop a sense of where the good shit is and how to like process and how to be skeptical, Yeah, <laughs> you know, of your own biases and, you know, of what you're taking in and like, you have to have a quick willingness. And this has happened to me more than once in this era. You have to be quick to recognize when you've fucked it up. Yeah. Like sometimes I can get caught in a, in a shitty article. Like I'll retweet it and then like, Whoa, I just learned that it was actually bullshit or, you know, disinformation or like improperly sourced and, you know, I don't know. There's I, someone out there who, who hates everything, you know, like there's, there's a group out there who hates the New York times that they gave too much attention to Trump when he was running. And, and they're the reason that Trump got elected president there. I think there's something fishy going on in with, pockets of the New York times. I, mean, I think, I, I think history will bear that out. I think there's something funny with money. And I think that, uh, some of these journalists, like some of these access journalists who have been on the Trump beat have been either like irresponsible or idiotic or both. But I think there's, I, I smell something weird there. And I, I'm, I'm basing that on like a kind of a broad, I mean, they've had a pretty, like they've been beating the drum against Trump, like, you know, pretty steadily since, since he got elected. Um, except when they said they, except when they, uh, published that story that the, you know, there was no uh, evidence or connection at all, uh, of, you know, uh, Russian investigation. Remember well, that part of this is like their react people news sources are reacting so quickly to everything instead of letting kind of things play out a little bit. So they're that, publishing things as soon as they happen. That was a big fucking error. Cause there's competition. Yeah, I know. I know that was a big cut, like right before the election, but also like who's reading the New York times. It's, it's only, it's only Democrats. So it doesn't really, they're no, just, speak no, because here's what I would say. People in the media, in the mainstream press and in local newspapers across the country, it is the, it's still the, the gray lady. Like it's, it's a source and it, it, when they make a claim or they publish a story, it reverberates. So you have anchor men and anchor women and pundits and local reporters, you know, there's a ripple effect. And so there is real consequence. I don't ne necessarily think it carries the same weight it did in like mid 20th century, but, 
um, it matters. It still matters. And I get everything from Infowars, <laughs> Breitbart. Yeah. So anyhow, uh, you are one of the most voracious readers. Oh, you know, what we didn't get to, hmm. I want to get to that before we get to, uh, reading and writing is the story of your, um, Oh, my parentage. Yeah. Because this is unique and I think is, uh, is increasing like a big part of, of who you are. I mean, it's had, obviously has had a big effect over the last few years. Yeah. Do you want to just tell the story? Sure. Yeah. Let people know what it is. Um, all right. So I'm 45 now when I was just after my 40th birthday, I took that 23 in me test Yeah. just on a whim total, you know, a friend of mine told me about it. I thought it sounded interesting. There's always been so much kind of ambiguity about my, my family's background, took the test, spit in the thing, waited six weeks, got the results back. And the results were a little weird right away because I always thought I was a hundred percent Jewish and it was like, you're 70% Jewish and you're 30%, um, like European non-Jewish. And I was like, Oh, that's strange. I wonder what, what that's about. And then I go into the database section where, you know, you link up with people that you're related to. And I had all these distant cousins, but I had one really close relative that I shared 25% of DNA with. And it was like, this person's your grandson. I was like, what the fuck? And we, is your grandson. So it runs this algorithm. And do you have a grandchild? (laughs) No, Okay. No, it saw the algorithm. It saw the thing. It said, "Oh, you share twenty five percent of your DNA with this person. That's how much a grandchild and a grandparent shares. It's also the same amount of DNA that uh, half siblings share." Right. So it turned out to be a half sibling. I get in touch with this guy. He's eleven years younger than me. He found out that his parents used a sperm donor from the sperm clinic at UCLA, fertility clinic at UCLA. My dad went to UCLA, so we thought immediately that my dad must have donated sperm when he was a college student. Absolutely does not sound like my dad. He was not like a real giver, even. I gave so much sperm in college. It was crazy. <laughs> Did you really? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a lot of listies out just, there. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to know. That... God, there's so many podcasts in the Boulder area. We don't know why. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of podcasts spawn out there roaming the earth. Just with sure microphones everywhere. <laughs> um, so we thought, anyway, we thought my this guy was my dad's kid. Turns out, and then kind of going around and around on it. And then finally my mom calls me one night and she's like, I have something to tell you. Um, dad's not your dad. Like dad's not your biological father. We used a sperm donor because we couldn't get pregnant. So what did, how did you receive that news? Like in the moment I was, well, I knew she was about to say something crazy. So I put the phone on speaker and I held it up so Ellen could hear also. And Ellen was just like wide eyed and my mom's prone to exaggeration. So I was like, is she she full of shit? Like, what is she talking about? But you know, yeah, I was just shocked, you know, and she thought I was, she got really defensive. She's like, are you mad at me? Are you mad? I'm like, I'm not mad at you. I'm just trying to fucking process this, you know? Right. Right. And I, I asked her, I go, when were you going to tell me? And she goes, on my deathbed. <laughs> thanks, Mom. Yeah, thanks, Mom. What would you have preferred from the start knowing? Do you have a sense of like when you would? When... No, I, th- I think I found out at the right time, to be honest with you. Okay. Because my father had passed away. I didn't have to have an awkward conversation with him about it. Um, you know, I had a family, I have a career. I'm not like desperately in search of an identity. I think when, I think some of my half siblings who I've discovered since then are really like hell bent on finding out everything they can about this. How many half siblings have you found so far? 24. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so, like, yeah, it's just so crazy. You meet and you're connecting with these people. You've had, like, dinner with them and stuff. Seven of us got together for dinner in December. Yeah. It was and, fun. And do you, like, you, so you meet, like, a half-sister or a half-brother with whom you share, what, a quarter of your genetics? Yeah. I'm still the oldest, by the way. You are? all 24. Yeah. Okay. And do you, but do you feel a connection or is it like you know what i'm saying like like when you meet these people is there some like real like animal recognition or like where you really have like an immediate rapport or do you feel like maybe that's just like a psychological trick because you know you're related yeah i mean i think there's in a few of them there's there's definitely been things like the first guy i met we met for coffee down here on, on larchmont and we were walking and um you know i was trying to break the ice so like as a joke i look over at him and i go so how's that depression and OCD been treating you these last 30 years, you know, and he like looked at me really wide eyed <laughs> and I'm like, and you know, I, he, he was going through it same as me. And then yeah. we were interviewed for this documentary about donor conceived children and, and the interview ha interviewer had us and she turned the camera off and she goes, she goes, you guys should look at yourselves right now. And we looked down and we were like both sitting the exact same way with our, our legs crossed the exact same way and our kind of posture the same. <laughs> so I think, you know, there's something about, there's yeah. something biological there. And one of the half brothers is a writer and, you know, he's, uh, but there, and there's definitely like been this, this depression neuroses thing that everyone seems to kind of been suffering through and from all the siblings. But like, unfortunately, I don't feel really a lot of connection with, with them. And, and I've been kind of pulling away lately, actually, because first it was really interesting and exciting, but it just got to be too much. 24. It's too much. How to many, handle. how many do you think there might be? I mean, there could be a hundred. I don't know. Damn. Yeah. This guy was like cocked and loaded. <laughs> we know who it is, by the way. And you know, yeah. you know who the dad is. Yeah. Have you met him? No, he's not interested. And I'm not interested to be honest with you. I don't care. His... We got a hold of one of his sons, like his, you know, real, real sons. Yeah. And he's like, just wanted you to let you know my dad's fine. There's no, like, family illnesses. There's no disease. That's all I needed to know. Like, I right. definitely was not looking for another father. But some of my half-siblings are like, I'm going to drive up there to Washington, and I'm just going to knock on his door. Be like, what? And, and do what? Can like, you imagine donating sperm when you're, like, in college, and then, like, 30 years oh, later, like, 50 people come back being like, Dad. What a nightmare. Yeah. I don't want to know. Just don't, you know, if you're going to do that, like, I think there's something like, there's something benevolent about being a sperm donor yeah. because look, your parents wanted to have a child, couldn't conceive. He gave them the opportunity to have a child. That's yeah. it's not nothing. No, it's not nothing. And you know, he made a few bucks and whatever he was paying for his books or his beer money or, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I have a buddy who's a, uh, we all ejaculate for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I have a buddy who's a gay guy and donated sperm years ago. And then, like, I want to say it was twins. They came knocking. And they have, like, a relationship now. Were they over 18? I think so, yeah. Yeah. But they came back and they were like, you're my dad, and or, you know, you're my biological dad. Well, and they're moving towards, I mean, there's this whole donor-conceived community that I kind of started to dip my toe in and then just pulled way back from. But, I mean, there's people who are really, like, wrecked by this, by not knowing who their biological parents are, and or biological donor dads or whatever you want to call it. There's so much terminology. Um I just, but, oh yeah, there in Australia, for example, like there's open, everything's open. Like you, you have to be able to find out. So I think they're kind of moving that way. But when my mom did it, the advice the doctor gave her was never tell them, never bring it up, just let it go. And now like friends of mine who've, who've conceived, um, through fertility, uh, clinics and stuff, they, t they say to them, 
tell your kids as soon as you can. Yeah. It's like adoption. Yeah. Adoption. You read them a book about it and yeah. tell you know, them as soon as, as soon as you can. You were chosen. You were cho- your chosen one. Yeah. You're the, cho- yeah, you're <laughs> you're the, the chosen, chosen one. one. I love that. Book. Give our kids more God complexes. <laughs> So you're uh, like, you know, to get to book stuff, you're one of the biggest readers I know, like voracious reader. You've read everything. I like reading. You like reading. I really, yeah, How like... often, like, give me your reading habits. Like how much am I reading? Yeah. I read like a, I read like a novel a week. Okay. Audiobook or? I, I usually have an audiobook going, but usually I'm, I'm like commuting to work. I'm listening to like a, it's usually like a memoir or, or nonfiction, but uh, when I'm reading, I'm reading fiction. And you read like in the morning or? Yeah, I read in the morning. I read in my lunch break. I read at night before I go to bed. So you always have a book. In always have a, yeah. Okay. And then you wrote this book over a period of how long? About eight years. And you wrote it, what, during lunch breaks and that, you know, when slow point, you know, slow, uh, office days. Or yeah. Whatever? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, I've been consulting for the last eight years. I had my own company before I took this full-time job and, you know, I, I could kind of set my own hours. So I would go in and I would write in the morning for a couple hours and then do my, and then do my work. And it's easier when it's just you and you don't have like staff meetings and right, right, all that stuff. bureaucratic bullshit. Gets you harder. get a lot more done. Yeah. Do you feel like you're going to keep going? Like this is something that's like you yeah. built it into your life. You're going to keep writing. Yeah. I got, I'm working on something else already. How far? Uh, how I would like about 15,000 words. Okay. Something new. That's pretty good. Trying to write something shorter. This one got, what little, is this? This is like a hundred thousand words. 165. Jesus Christ. I know. I couldn't stop. Oh, yeah. Maybe next time it'll be what? 120. <laughs> <laughs> it felt so good to finish that. I just like, that's what, that's what I'm jonesing for again is just being done. Yeah. And then what about, uh, other kinds like screenwriting? Do you do any of that? What? Well, I'd done a lot of short story writing I, before I started the novel. I had a few things published and written some screenplays, have a pilot that I wrote about the whole fertility thing that I'm trying to do something with. I feel like it's a funny, there's something funny there to be mine. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, what a weird set of circumstances to have all these half siblings. Yeah. yeah like, I and then to... you meet them like, I mean, I, I guess you like some of them better than others. You feel more of a connection. That's, yeah. That's natural. Yeah. And then like you meet your sister, the ones who are too, <laughs> the ones who are too into it kind yeah. of freak me out. It's almost like when you meet like a, uh, like a, someone you're dating and then all of a sudden they're like really into you really quickly and you yeah, just yeah, kind of yeah. want to pull back. Yeah. That, that's what it's been like with a lot of these half siblings. Right. Like, Hey big bro, what's going on? Yeah. Like, it's like, fuck <laughs> that. <laughs> no, thank you. Oh my God. Well, I'm happy for you. Thank you. Um, it's a big achievement, uh, 160,000 words. And I'm glad that we got a chance to actually, I mean, you know, for people listening, Adam and I are buddies and we see each other all the time, but I've, I've learned some things about you that I didn't necessarily know. I'm happy to see you publishing this book. I'm glad I get to help you, um, get the word out about it. And I wish you well on whatever comes next. Thanks, Brad. All right. That's Adam Greenfield. His novel, his debut novel is called Circa. It's available now from Pelicanesis Press. It is the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, Circa, by Adam Greenfield. Go get your copy right now. Adam can be found on Twitter. His handle over there is at agreenfield73. I think I got that right. At agreenfield73. Right? Let me check this out. Make sure my brain is working. Yeah, it's agreenfield73 on uh, Twitter. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. Don't forget this podcast has its own official app. It's free. Go get it. 
you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. All right, I hope I got to everything. I feel like I'm pressed for time. I'm feeling uh, time constraints. Can you sense it? Can you feel that in my voice? All right. Hey, did I mention that we have an avocado tree in our yard that's actually bearing fruit? It's a miracle of nature. (laughs) 